site. Uh, if you look for the last page to uh, see the illustrations, uh, you're going to not see it tonight. Uh, we don't have it. Uh, I told Pastor Dave that uh, he had the night off from that. Uh, I'm not following the narration of the story tonight. I'm stepping back and doing the, an overview. And uh, so it was going to be extremely difficult to illustrate because it's not a narrative that I'm doing. And uh, it has many different facets. So we'll pick that up next week. Well, not next week. It's Fellowship Sunday. But the week after that, Lord willing, we'll pick it up and continue on with the narration. But I thought it would be good for us to take a step back tonight and uh, look at, again, the bigger picture. Introduction. Joseph realizes that God is at work, not only in his own individual life, but in the lives of the people of the world. Genesis 50:20. And as for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, as he's talking about his being sold into slavery, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He saw that as the overarching purpose of all that had taken place that the explanation is that it was God's way of preserving the lives of many people. There is more going on in this passage than merely providing moralistic lessons for us to live by. There is more in this narrative than how we are to respond to those who mistreat us. For example, Joseph forgave people and so should we. This is the way in which oftentimes the Bible is handled. We just look for lessons, but they, they tend to be very simple, surface, and individualistic. So we learn that we ought to be people that are forgiving. We learn that we ought to be people that are loving. We learn that we ought to be people of the truth. And, and the scriptures almost taught in the same way that you might teach Aesop's fables. That you, you have a story, and it has a moral to it. It has a lesson to be learned from it. And the story is not true. The story isn't historical. The story is just there to teach us a lesson about how to live. And that's the way many people treat the Bible. Not that they don't say it's true, but they disregard its historicity. They disregard how it fits into the overall plan of Scripture. And then, of course, there are liberal churches who do deny the historicity of the Bible, that do deny these things took place, and they do treat it just as a moral book. It mattered that Joseph forgave people. It mattered in ways that he could not have understood at the time. And not just in his forgiveness. It mattered that he was a person of industry. It mattered that he was a person of integrity. Not just for his own enrichment, not just for his own happiness, but it mattered in affects the whole world. There's a greater lesson as to why that response is so important. It affects the whole world. You can't divorce his integrity and the things that he's doing from a purpose that is much higher. So theme, God was working out his purpose for the entire world through Joseph's life. 
This is the overarching purpose of the narrative. We need to understand the meta-narrative of redemptive history. A meta-narrative is the storyline that runs through any story from beginning to end. I continually refer to it as the big picture. But it's the, it's the simple, ultimate story. What, what the message is ultimately all about. One of the best courses I ever took was actually at Kutztown State, uh, at that time college, now university. It was a, uh, 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 it was a course entitled Oral Interpretation. And what we were required to do in that course was to take a book and then learn to summarize that book in 10 minutes or less. And we had to stand up and tell the significance of this book, tell the story, narrow it down, get to what is the ultimate point, and give enough details that that people would understand this book in 10 minutes or less. It's a great exercise because it forces you to center in on what's really significant. If you listen to people tell stories, sometimes they go off into tangents. And they'll, they'll tell about, you know, uh, I was going to the store, and then they're, all of a sudden they're uh, talking about the traffic they ran into and all this other stuff, and they're not getting to the point. Well, we need to get to the point. And the meta-narrative, the, the overarching story of the Bible, is about mankind's fall, Sin entering the world, God dealing with that sin, and providing for us eternal life and a complete uh, rectification, a, a complete destruction of all the evil and bringing about all the good. That's the meta narrative of the Bible. And all these other stories fit into that bigger, arching picture. This is the lesson of which we must not lose sight. We need to realize that God is at work not only in our own individual lives, but also in the lives of others. Our life is one of the rippling effects of the epicenter of God's redemptive plan. Think of God's redemptive plan as a a pot, if you would. And then there's a stone that's dropped into this pond, and we've all seen it, and then the ripples start going out. Well, our lives are these ripples that are going out, that are affecting other people, that are flowing out of God's ultimate purpose and plan. This truth will affect all things, especially how we read the Bible and understand the Bible. Our understanding needs to be God-centered, And not man-centered. Now we often say that in terms of bringing honor and glory to praise. But the Bible is a, a, a story of what God is doing. It's a story revealing who the person of God is and what he's accomplishing. And many times we don't read the Bible that way. We read it in a very man-centered way as to what God is doing in our own life. Like what is God doing in Joseph's life? rather than asking the question, what is God doing in general? What is God doing in the world? And how does Joseph's life fit into that? 
What? And so we need to ask today, what is God doing in this world and how does my life fit into that? How does your life fit into that? It's not just about you and your personal relationship to God. It's you and your relationship to God and the overarching purpose of God. Then we come back to the moralistic teaching. Then it has significance. See, it, it matters that you and I are honest people. It matters that you and I tell the truth. It matters that you and I work hard. Not just so that we can be happy or fulfilled or even be blessed of God. It matters for the whole plan of God. The rippling effect of God's redemptive plan had come down to Joseph and the rippling effects of that continues on to his brothers, to the Egyptians, to the nation of Israel, to the entire world. I'm going to unpack all of that in just a moment. But Charles Coulson has written a book and he has titled it why America doesn't work. Why America doesn't work. And uh, it's really a play on words. Because he has two main ideas. First is that America has run amok. There's a lot that's wrong with our society. And then secondly, it's about the Christian work ethic. And how people aren't being as productive as they once were. People aren't being as devoted to their work as they once were. And so he is talking about the Christian work ethic. And because we have lost sight of a Christian work ethic, it's affecting our community. It's affecting our schools. It's affecting all of our situation. We need to see that our moral living has ramifications. In the New Testament, Paul asks the question, what advantage then does the Jew have? And the answer that's given in the next verse is much in every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The advantage that the Jewish people had is they had the word of God, which was a huge advantage. And we need to see that it's a huge advantage that we have the word of God. And when we talk about the United States of being blessed of God, that's not just in a, a, a mystical sense that is totally separate from the realities of God. God has blessed us because we had the word of God, because when the pilgrims come, pilgrims come to this land looking for religious freedom, because they were devoted to the things of God. And that impacted their community. That impacted the states. That impacted our government. That impacted our country. And that impacted the world. That Christian ethic is what made this nation great. And if you lose that Christian ethic, then you start losing your families. You start losing your community. If, if, if families aren't people of integrity, it's going to affect your children. It's going to affect your, your spouse. It's going to affect all these things. Righteousness matters. We learned that from the life of Joseph. So let's look at the meta narrative. First, God's purposes are being achieved in Joseph's life and his, and his wife and his sons. It's not just about Joseph and his family, however. God's purposes are being achieved in the lives of his brothers. Genesis 45, 7. And God sent me before you, he's talking to his brothers, to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. So it's not only about his brothers, but it's about their posterity. 
to preserve a remnant in the earth. Out of that remnant, ultimately, the Messiah will come. The Messiah, Jesus, will not come from Joseph's descendants, but from the tribe of Judah. It is not Joseph and his brother and his brothers that's being viewed. It's actually Jesus Christ being viewed. And one reason that Joseph has been sent into the land of Egypt is so that the lineage would be preserved, that the brothers would not all die, and that out of their descendants, Jesus would be born. Now, who would have thought it? Who would have thought the way Joseph lived his life would matter about the coming of the Messiah? But it did. And God had that in view. See, God's purposes are being achieved in the nation of Israel. The narrative also serves to give us understanding of how the Israelites came to dwell in Egypt, fulfilling God's purpose in the narrative of redemption history. In Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking to Abraham. A number of generations before Joseph. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. This is talking about the time in which Israel is going to be in bondage in the land of Egypt. Verse 14, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So here's the prediction, here's the prophecy, and now here it is being fulfilled. So the life of Joseph tells us how it is that the Israelites came to live in the land of Canaan and how they came to be slaves under Pharaoh. D. But it's not just about the nation of Israel. D. God's purposes are being achieved for Egypt. God is preserving the lives of Egyptians. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. God is also going to bring judgment upon the Egyptians. Verse 14 of chapter 15. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. The narrative will provide for us an understanding of why judgment was to come upon the Egyptians. Why were the Egyptians worthy of being judged? What was it that God was judging in the Egyptians? I'll come back to that. Number four. The narrative introduces us to important background to the reason that the Israelites were hated by the Egyptians. Why? Why did the Israelites become slaves to the Egyptians? Now we find out there are a number of reasons. But tonight we begin to see the beginning of the reason. The Israelites were seen as spoilers of the land. Now, here I'm, I'm jumping forward in the narrative, but I hope that m- m- many of you tonight know the story. That's why I decided to do this tonight, because I thought, this is the remnant, you know your, your Bible, and I can talk about these bigger themes, because I think you're going to know the story well enough that you can follow what I'm, I'm saying here. But now, the brothers have come down, now Jacob comes down, now they're before Pharaoh. And 
Joseph says to his father, And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from your youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So here's problem number one. The Egyptians hate shepherds. Why? Well, it's the same old story as in uh, the uh, good old days out west. And there were uh, range wars between the cattle men and the sheep herders. Because sheep graze so low, so close to the ground, that it kills the grass. Uh, beef cows won't do that. Beef cows won't graze, uh, graze so deeply that the grass is killed. But sheep will. And so people that are raising beef hate sheep because it ultimately destroys the land. But not only do they raise sheep, but the Israelites were given the best of the land. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. The, the richest, best grazing land that there was. But where did access to that land come from? See, the Egyptians were in the process of losing their land rights to Pharaoh. There, we had the seven years of famine, excuse me, the seven years of prosperity. Now the seven years of famine start coming. And as the seven years of famine start coming, the Egyptians run out of food and they need to start buying food from Joseph. Genesis 74, uh, 47, 14. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt, the land of Canaan, for the grain which they they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the, that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land. But buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. D. The Egyptians would become slaves to Pharaoh and indirectly to Joseph and his brothers. Buy us, we'll be slaves to Pharaoh. In this same storyline in chapter 47, go back to verse 6. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen, and if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Remember, Pharaoh's got all the livestock. And he says, put your family members in charge. Let them take care of my livestock that just came from the Egyptian people. 
E, Joseph displaced the Egyptians from their properties. Genesis 47.20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his, his field, because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. So they become slaves to Pharaoh, and Joseph moves them off their properties and puts them in cities. F. How would we expect the Egyptians to think about Joseph and his family when they take over their land? They're going to get the land of Goshen. Where do they get it from? From these Egyptians that had to sell it. He packs them up, livestock and barrel, and moves them to the cities, moves his family into it, and then brings them back to work the land as slaves under his own family. It doesn't go down very well. And that is the beginning of some of the issues that are existing between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And you begin to understand why they might want to make slaves of the Israelites when they were slaves themselves to the Israelites. E. God's purposes are being achieved for the entire world. God is not merely sparing the Israelites or even the Israelites and the Egyptians, but the Israelites, the Egyptians, and the entire world. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That included not just the Egyptians and the Israelites, but everybody. The story of Joseph has tremendous ramifications for the entire world. God's power would be proclaimed throughout the entire world as God eventually deals with a later Pharaoh. In Romans chapter 9, this is not the Pharaoh in the day of Joseph. This is a Pharaoh 400 years later. But we read in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So God's purpose was that through the judgment that came upon Egypt, God's name would be proclaimed everywhere. God's reputation would spread. Everyone would hear about the power of God. Now, notice how this takes place in the book of Joshua. When Joshua, uh, not Joshua, but when the spies come to Rahab's house, when they are uh, sent to scope out Jericho, we read this, the dialogue between Rahab and the spies. Rahab's words, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. God's glory, God's power was proclaimed. And here is Rahab, living in the land of Canaan, 
hearing what took place in Egypt, and fears this great and mighty and powerful God. But long before, long before the judgment of God is proclaimed, and fear wrought, 400 years before that, B, God's provision is first proclaimed throughout the whole earth in God's dealing with the present Pharaoh, the Pharaoh under Joseph. Look at the top of page 7. That verse, top of page 7. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. The whole earth came to Egypt to receive the food that God had provided. The grace of God is being proclaimed before the judgment of God. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Let's go back. Number two. The occasion for Joseph reuniting with his brothers is the famine in the land. The famine came just as Joseph had prophesied. Genesis 41:54. And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. The famine affected not just the land of Egypt, but all the surrounding nations. And the seven years of famine became, began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all the lands. However, it was only in Egypt that there was food. And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Three, here was God's grace to the land of Egypt. God had given them his revelation. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Not everybody on the face of the earth, not all the land surrounding them would have heard about Joseph's dream. But they are going to benefit from the fruits of that dream. Joseph was in charge of dispensing the food during the famine. The Egyptians became in need of food. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. And Joseph dispenses the food. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Where did Joseph get the food? Well, the first answer is from the abundance that God provided, verse 47. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its surrounding fields. Then Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Joseph had stored up enough food to feed the entire earth, or at least all these nations surrounding them. But where did Joseph get that food? Answer, Joseph took one-fifth of all that the people produced. Genesis 41, 34. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers and charge the land and let them exact a fifth at the produce of the land of Egypt. So, Joseph 
announces a 20% tax. There's a 20% tax that goes out over all Egypt that they've got to bring 20% of their grain uh, uh, to, uh, to Joseph. Verse 35 and verse 36. Now let them gather all the food out of those good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish during the famine. All of the Egyptians were provided food through the administration of Joseph. All the land was, of Egypt was without food. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. B. Had they followed Joseph's example and taken the message of Pharaoh's dreams seriously, they would have had more than enough food. Here's the beginning of judgment. Here's the beginning of the reason for judgment. Because they did not heed the warning that Joseph gave. The warning is, there's going to be seven years of prosperity, and there's going to be seven years of famine. Now think about this. In order to provide enough food for everybody, Joseph taxes them at 20%. That means 80% they still had. 80% was still under their own possession. He, out of the 20%, saves enough that he can not only feed all of Egypt, but he can feed all the surrounding nations. And with their 80%, they don't keep enough to be able to feed themselves. They squandered it. They wasted it. They consumed it all in their appetite and greed and did not take seriously the message of Joseph. Bad days are coming. They can follow his example. They heard the story. They can see the grain piling up in the cities. Why are we doing all this? Because there's famine coming. There's famine coming. We've got to get ready. And they didn't. They didn't. This is a contributing factor to the eventual judgment that is to come upon the earth. The Israelites did not learn the lesson concerning the manna given to them. There's this recurring theme in the scripture about bread. The multitude did not learn the lesson of feeding the 5,000. God feeds the multitudes, and yet they don't come to him for the right reasons. People will not learn the lesson for the most part through relief today. We as Christians can be about the good work of feeding this world, which is a good thing to do. That does not mean we shouldn't do relief work. It does teach us that there are plethora of reasons to do the relief work. God does want to preserve people alive. It's a good thing. It was a good thing that Joseph fed the Egyptians. But it didn't bring many of them to faith. And we need to realize that. And we need to realize the way in which even the Israelites, when they received this manna, didn't produce much faith in them when it came to enter the promised land. Lesson? There is a tendency not to praise God or give Him glory in practical ways 
when we enjoy, when we enjoy his abundance. The tendency is to squander it. The tendency is to waste it. And the tendency is not to rec- recognize the great grace and goodness of God. See, the famine was being felt not only in, the Egypt, in Egypt, but the other nations as well. And all the earth, and all the people of the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in the, in the earth. Which means that everybody heard the story. Why does Egypt have, have food and nobody else does? That message spread throughout the whole earth. And everybody came for food. God's grace, God's provision, God's power, God's wisdom, all is being proclaimed through this simple act of providing food. This is a contributing factor to the judgment that is to eventually come upon all the nations to which the Israelites will be sent by God. Verse 13, And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Then in the fourth generation, that we should return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Their sin hasn't been fully manifested yet. So we're going to wait for 400 years. And the beginning of this is their indifference to the grace of God and his provision. Three, but please note that the entire earth is hearing of God's ability to provide and actually partaking of that provision. They are actually eating it. Now, D, the brothers come to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph as well. Now, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you standing, staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us from that place, so that we may live and die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that, that harm may befall them. So, the sons of Israel come to buy grain among those who were coming. A little bit of an aside. All these people are coming. Now we're going to focus in that in all the people that were coming, Joseph's family is coming too. But we have a tendency to focus just on Joseph's family and not the whole world coming. And you really lose sight of the narrative if you lose sight of the world. Now we focus on Joseph so that we can then again focus on the world and see what God is doing in the brothers so that we would see what God is doing in the world. That's how we've got to approach this narrative. We come back to the epicenter, to the rippling effects in the lives of the brother. This, this redemptive history, collapsing and then flourishing again. Conclusion. There is an incredible dynamic at work between grace and judgment. We must see the meta-narrative of grace and judgment in the Bible. Before judgment comes, grace comes. And we see it time and time again. And we see it in this narrative. We must see history moving to a climax 
with the Lord's return and how the present events are leading up to that climax. And how simple decisions in our lives, the ramifications for our righteousness, can actually impact a world. Now that's hard to see in everyday life. But the decisions you make are impacting your workplace. If you are a good worker, as Joseph was a good worker, he prospered his father, he prospered Potiphar, he prospered the jailer. If you're a good worker, you will prosper your boss. You will bring a measure of success. Your righteousness is going to affect other people. You're telling the truth, your example, and, as I say, your decisions. Let me tell you a story. Uh, as many of you know, I have a sister. My sister's name is Janet. She's married to Bob. Bob is a uh, professor at the University of Louisiana. He uh, uh, teaches uh, statistical psychology. But uh, he also has an awful lot of musical ability. Uh, music runs in his family. Bob's brother uh, is a professional pianist and uh, has been pianist for many of Billy Graham crusades. Well, they have three children. Their uh, youngest child, his name is Tim. And uh, his parents decided that they wanted to give him saxophone lessons when he was a child. So he started taking saxophone lessons. And then uh, my brother and sister are very devoted Christians, very involved in their church. He's an elder. And so they began to play together. The father would play the piano. Uh, Tim would play saxophone. and They would minister in music in the church quite often. Well, Tim continued to develop in his proficiency. He uh, grew up and he's now an adult. And he went to uh, the University of Louisiana and uh, majored in jazz performance. He's pretty gifted. And he started playing, you know, gigs, as they say, in New Orleans, because they live in Lafayette, Louisiana, not far away. And New Orleans is a jazz capital. And so he would go there and he'd sit in with different groups. And uh, when somebody was missing or whatever, they'd call him up and ask him if, if he could uh, play with that particular group. And so he would regularly be in New Orleans playing with different groups. Well... As time would go and as things would have it, he made a lot of friends. And uh, then uh, eventually there came an opening. Uh, the jazz uh, saxophonist uh, quit a group with the leader called uh, Trombone Shorty. Now, that's not much of a name, Trombone Shorty. But uh, he got that name because he was a child prodigy. He's been playing the trombone since he was a very small child. Started playing, playing for, uh, publicly, and uh, so uh, he became known as Trombone Shorty because he's this little kid playing the trombone. But now Trombone Shorty is grown up. And he just happens to be one of the best, uh, I say trumpet trombonists. He just happens to be one of the best trombonists in the world, if not the best. And, uh, in fact, uh, he's nominated this uh, year for a Grammy in uh, Jazz Musician. My nephew plays with that group. 
They've been on uh, Letterman a number of times. They've done Austin City Limits. He travels the United States and he travels the world. Travels all over the place. All over the place. From a beginning that nobody knew what would happen, he's playing in one of the world's best jazz groups. He has an incredible opportunity to affect the lives of others for Lord Jesus Christ. My uh, sister said, you know, I'm praying for Tim. You need to pray for Tim. Pray for his testimony. Pray for his his uh, boldness to speak for Christ. Pray that he be used of God. My sister said to me in tears, they put out a, a number of uh, albums and uh, she can listen to uh, the albums and the, and the uh, jazz performances. But she said, the song I love listening to the most that they have recorded, not by any public, uh, not any professional way, but the church recorded as we record stuff here. A song that he was playing with his father as a little boy. He, pray, he, he played, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I'd rather have Jesus than worlds, money, fame. Included in those lyrics is, I'd rather have Jesus than the world's applause. And she said with tears in her eyes, I hope that's still true. I hope that's still true. I hope that Jesus means more to him than all these other things. And it will matter the decisions that he makes Because he can impact, literally, the entire world. Joseph's life impacted the entire world. You and I don't have a clue to how our lives can impact other people. But righteousness matters. For it serves and advances the purpose of God. That's the lesson of Joseph. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness and help us to realize that righteousness matters and that you're doing things in our lives that are far beyond what we could ever imagine. The decisions that we are making, use them, we pray, to further your kingdom. And may we humbly be people that are doing the right thing, even when it doesn't bring us joy or happiness or peace as it didn't bring... Joseph, join happiness and peace when he's in prison and when he's in a pit and when he's in slavery. But yet, Lord, there was something greater in store than his own personal happiness. May we see that the world does not revolve around us, but your plan and your purpose. May we see ourselves fitting into it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much and you're dismissed.